Alright, scripture reading for this morning is from the book of Luke. Is this on? Chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling his two disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who, you will, prepare, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. The word of the Lord. Amen. Well, if I asked each one of you uh, who Jesus was, I think about that for a minute, and say, well, who was Jesus? If I asked each one of you, who was Jesus? You would all probably give a somewhat similar answer. The wording might be different. The way you describe who he, who he was and what he did might sound a little different from the person sitting next to you, but it would there'd be a, a similar uh, response from most people in this room. Now, if I ask the average unchurched person, um, or 50 unchurched people, who was Jesus, I might get 50 different answers, ranging from, well, he was a powerful prophet, or... He was a nice man who loved people. Or Jesus was all about accepting people for who they really are. 
or my favorite, Jesus was all about inclusiveness. Uh, some would say Jesus was a fraud. Or Jesus may have thought he was the Son of God, but he wasn't because of X or because of Y or because of Z. Much of what we've covered so far in Luke's narrative is intended to get at who Jesus is, Jesus' identity. Is Jesus just a uh, powerful prophet? Is he the new king, God's anointed, destined to replace Herod? Or what is he? Well, that's what John wants to know here in our text this morning. Now, you remember, may remember back in uh, Luke chapter 3 that John was put in prison by Herod for calling him out on his unlawful marriage to his brother's wife, Herodias. Men of God had uh, voices that spoke truth to power back in those days. And if a politician uh, was not a moral man, he uh, ran the risk of influencing people who saw him as a leader. And so John spoke out and was put in prison for it. And um, John sends um, a couple of his disciples to inquire about Jesus' ministry. Um, He's... uh, He wants to know who Jesus is because John is apparently puzzled by Jesus. He's confused by Jesus. Um, Jesus isn't doing what John expects him to do. If Jesus is the Messiah, why isn't he establishing some sort of uh, political or messianic kingdom in the sense that the Jews expected the Messiah? To do things that they expected the Messiah to do, throw off the yoke of the Roman oppressors and bring immediate judgment to the wicked. And presumably, uh, why wasn't Jesus liberating John from prison? And the question is this: Is Jesus the coming one? Is Jesus the one that the prophets promised would come? John sees himself as uh, the eschatological prophet ushering in the last days. Eschatology just means the last things. And he sees himself as the prophet ushering in the last days. And we we remember that John went around preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he said, the one who comes after me will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit, and he'll gather the wheat and the, the wheat into the barn and the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. And so John is expecting the Messiah who comes after him, if it is Jesus, to bring swift judgment and destroy the wicked quickly. In verse 18... Uh, John sends some of his disciples to check um, that Jesus' ministry is all it's cracked up to be. John is in his prison cell wrestling with doubt, and he's probably thinking, um, what's taking so long? No doubt he's received reports back and forth from his disciples giving him updates 
about Jesus, and he sends two of his own disciples. And in verse 20 it says, two disciples came to Jesus. They said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now Luke is careful in his narrative. There's these little parenthetical statements that Luke makes as he's giving us the story. And as he's telling the story, the, the statements in parentheses, I don't know if they're in parentheses on the screen, but they might be in your Bible, um, they are um, like a quick little aside. And so in verse 21, it says, at this very moment that, the, that John's disciples approached Jesus, by the way, at this very moment, Jesus was curing many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So you see the irony of it, right? John sends his disciples, they want to inquire of him what's going on, and as they come to him, as they're approaching him, Luke is careful to tell us that in the midst of it, I mean, can you imagine two men walking up to Jesus, and he is casting out devils, you know, come out of her, Satan, you're healed, rise up from your sickbed, and they're walking to him to ask him whether or not he's actually the Messiah. And I would think, I would think, because if I was one of John's disciples, you know, I wa I, you walk up behind Jesus and he's doing these things, and I would say, I'm not going to ask him, you ask him. You know, you ask him, I'm not going to ask him. You know, and Jesus is healing, and he says, oh, excuse me for a minute, I'm sorry, can I help you? Well, uh, my friend has a question for you. No, he's got a... Well, Jesus, we, we wanted to know... Well, not us. John uh, wants to know um, if you are who you say you are. And Jesus, I can, I can imagine Jesus probably has a smirk on his face. Kind of just a crooked smile, you know. He doesn't immediately and directly answer the question and say, why, yes, of course, I'm the Messiah. He doesn't do that. He knows that there are ears and people listening all around. He wasn't just going to say, I'm the new king of Israel. That would have been reported back immediately to Herod and maybe have gotten him killed before the time. But this is what he says in verse 22. Go back. And report to John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk and those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Echoing, of course, all of those various passages from Isaiah prophesying about what the Messiah would do when he came. And if you were an observant Bible-believing, Bible-reading Jew who knew your Hebrew Scriptures, of course, seeing Jesus do those things, it would have clicked in your head, oh, that's right. The Messiah is not just going to bring judgment. He's going to uh, heal people and do wondrous, miraculous deeds, things that no other prophet had ever done. And what essentially Jesus has done is he's indirectly confirmed his identity 
but he's also redefined and given a redefinition of what the Messiah would be, who the Messiah would be, and what the Messiah, the Savior, would do. <clears throat> the Messiah <clears throat> is not a military ruler setting up uh, and settling political accounts, bringing judgment on Israel's enemies immediately, but he's also a long-suffering uh, ruler, showing mercy on those with the least social stature, the sick and the suffering and the marginalized Jesus is reaching out to. And Jesus knows that this may disappoint some people, including John. And look at what he says in verse 23. He says, And blessed is the one who is not offended in me. Blessed is the one who is not offended because I'm not what you thought I would be. The word there is scandalon. It's where we get the word scandalized. And other English versions say, blessed is the one who is not scandalized because of me. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Blessed is he who finds no occasion of stumbling in me. Because I'm not what you thought I would be. I, I didn't do the things you expected me to do. And you know, each one of us at some point in our Christian walk wrestle with that exact very same thing. We are frustrated at times by Jesus, offended at times by Jesus, and even stumble over what Jesus is to us because, well, we want him to do certain things for us. We want him to be the quick and speedy deliverer delivering us from our troubles because they're grievous and hard to endure and rescue us from heartache when things get hard immediately, swiftly coming in and saving the day so that we don't have to suffer, we don't have to endure hardship. But you know, the fact that Jesus is misunderstood by some is not his ministry going off the rails. It is actually promised in the Old Testament. Isaiah 8.14, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. And you might be struggling with that same issue, that same question that John wanted his disciples to ask Jesus. Is Jesus really the coming one, really the one who was to come? I look around out my front window or in the world and I watch the news and sometimes it doesn't look like Jesus is on the throne. Was Jesus really who he said he was? Maybe things haven't turned out the way in your life that you expected them to. The biggest struggle people have today with accepting uh, Jesus is accepting him for who he is who he actually is, and not what people want him to be, a Santa Claus figure or a genie in a bottle or a model for living your best life now. 
In John's day, Jesus didn't fit the preconceived idea of what the Messiah should be. We have to accept Jesus for who he is and not what we necessarily want him to be. It reminds me of that scene from The Karate Kid uh, where Daniel uh, goes to Mr. Miyagi's house and he's got all these classic cars and he uh, tells him to wax the cars and he's waxing on and waxing off and then paint the fence. And at the end of the day, after Danielson is frustrated because he feels he's been taken advantage of, he builds up the courage to confront Miyagi. And he confronts Miyagi and he's frustrated because he feels that this isn't what I signed up for, right? Wax on, wax off. I mean, it's just become a part of our culture's parlance, you know. Everyone knows the story, and if you don't, you should. <laughs> and then finally, Miyagi's had it, and he tells him, you know, let me see the moves. And he goes, oh, wax on, wax off. And he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, let me see you do it. And Miyagi starts throwing karate moves at it, and he finds that he knows karate. That the things that he's been doing that frustrated him for 12 or 15 hours all day actually have been teaching him his skills in karate. And it's at that moment that he recognizes and realizes this little five-foot-one Japanese guy is the real deal. You know, his clothes are from JCPenney, right? But he's the real deal. And in our culture right now, uh, Jesus isn't always fashionable or cool. In fact, sometimes it can be downright embarrassing to call yourself a Christian. Jesus is ridiculed, made fun of, but he's God incarnate. And like Isaiah promised, whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. Now Jesus responds to the questions from John's disciples, and he asks the crowd a question because it's not entirely clear whether Jesus' conversation with the two disciples was overheard by the whole crowd, or whether Luke wants to let us in on the fact that uh, the readers, you know, he, maybe Luke is aware that the readers now are thinking, oh, well, maybe John, because he doubted Jesus, maybe he's not the real deal. And Jesus turns around and vindicates John's ministry in verse 24. And it says, after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Reeds were, bushes of reeds were common scenes around the Galilee and in the Mediterranean and Middle Eastern desert. They were pretty and they symbolized the fertility of the land, but you wouldn't go out to the desert to see a reed blowing in the wind. And then he says, what did you go out to see? A, a man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, 
and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. John is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. So if you think about Calvary and the cross with before and after, of all of the prophets and all of the people, human beings that had lived up until that point before the crucifixion, Jesus is saying, John is greater than everyone who's ever been born. All of the prophets prophesied about Christ. Uh, all of the prophets, excuse me, who did prophesy about Christ were kind of standing on their tiptoes, inquiring into his sufferings and the time of the Messiah, but it was from a distance and it wasn't very clear. And they've come down this long line and they've arrived at John the Baptist, who has even met Christ personally. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he's actually met Christ in person, but he doesn't live to see everything Christ does and accomplishes. And this is what Jesus says in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John. Right? You're taking notes. Okay, none greater than John. John the greatest, got it. Very next verse. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Oh, scratch that out. One who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. See how that works? Jesus uses the greatness of John to make an illustration about the nature of membership in this different kind of kingdom. John is the greatest of everyone who's all of the prophets, people born of women, he says. I mean, what a statement, right? Up until this point, but he belongs to the old order of things. John belongs to the old order of things. And Jesus is introducing a new era of the kingdom of God, and those born not of women, but those born of God in the kingdom are greater than the greatest person born of women because they're on this side of the cross and the resurrection. Verse 28 again, I tell you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's a remarkable statement. If you are an average person, maybe a, a peasant, and you know, most people in those days were peasants. I looked up uh, a few years back, my mom was into genealogy and I did some genealogical research. Three quarters of my family from Eastern Europe, my father's father's from Syria, and I was excited to see what I would discover and found out, like most of us probably, I'm the descendant of European and Middle Eastern peasants. Most people were peasants. And Jesus tells them that in the kingdom of God, they're greater than the greatest ruler, the greatest king, greatest aristocrat that's ever lived. And you know that's true for us today? That because of Jesus Christ, we have a higher and nobler calling 
than kings and princes and rulers and powerful people? That our membership in this kingdom, because we've been born not just of women, but of God, means that in God's eyes, we are beloved, we are special, we are precious. Now, when all the people heard this, it says in verse 29, and the tax collectors too, they declared God's ways right. Now, verse 29, declared God just. Now, I translated it here, declared God's ways right, because when you think, well, God needs to be, to be declared just, you know, is there any question about God's righteousness? We need to justify God. But the word used there is vindicate, and then essentially what they're doing is acknowledging God's ways are just and right when they realize that they can be included into God's family regardless of their background, their connections, their education, their wealth, their nobility, and they say, God is just. God's ways are right. Right? God's ways are right. We struggle in our culture, too, today, to embrace people who we think are less than us. It, it's just natural. Someone who maybe looks deformed or someone who is poor, someone who is, you know, has a disease, someone who comes from a really rough neighborhood. You know, we struggle to feel like we're equal with other people. And for some reason, maybe it's that... You know, the residue of the sinful nature in us wants to exalt ourselves above others. But they say, God is just. God's ways are right. And in Luke's mind, the division of Israel that John had begun of separating the wheat and the chaff, the righteous and the wicked, is represented by the acceptance or refusal of baptism. And Luke makes another parenthetical statement as if to pull us aside. And he says, now, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And they rejected the purpose of God, and they rejected being baptized because it meant that all of their religious orthodoxy, I like religious orthodoxy, Right? We have to believe the right things. But for them, right, uh, it meant that all of, their, uh, all of the trappings of religious prestige and learning and education and stature in the religious community did not amount to anything. And you know, religious people, who, people who are, that's all they have is religion, they don't like the idea of grace. Because when you feel that you have something to bring to the table... You know, grace says, no, sorry. You need to check that out the door. And the Pharisees didn't like that. They were respected religious leader, leaders, experts in the law. And so to be baptized was an acknowledgement that they were sinners. And they didn't want to do that. They had a problem with grace. They rejected the purposes of God. They were offended at the idea that salvation was a gift and not a right. I'll say that again. The Pharisees were offended at the idea 
that salvation was a free gift and not a right to be earned. Religious people don't like the idea of grace. And this brings us to the last point. Jesus has just explained his own ministry and John's ministry to the crowd and realizing that there are some there, the Pharisees and others who have not responded to either John's ministry or Jesus' ministry, right? So John inquires of Jesus, and Jesus vindicates himself, and then Jesus turns to the crowd and vindicates John, but their styles were very different. John was an ascetic. He did not eat or drink, and he was dressed in, you know, rough clothing in the desert. And Jesus says, what can I compare to you two, right? Some people will not be satisfied by anything. And Jesus, you know, gives this rebuke, this parable of rebuke to Israel for not responding to John or himself, despite their differences in style, in style right? Nothing will satisfy them. And he says, you're like kids in the market square, verse 31. You're like children in the market square. Uh, one wants to play a game, and the, and, and the other wants to play a game, and they can't agree on what game they want to play. And Jesus is saying, you're fickle. You're like brats, saying, we played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't weep. In other words, we sang a wedding song, and you didn't celebrate. Right? Jesus came eating and drinking and celebrating. We sang a dirge, you know, which is a funeral song, and you didn't weep. You know, John came not eating or drinking, and you said he had a demon. The Son of Man came celebrating and drinking, and you say he's a wine-bibber an alcoholic, a wino, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he compares this generation, particularly the Pharisees who distance themselves from both Jesus and John, to spoiled children at play who petulantly reject whatever pastime anyone might suggest. I don't want to trivialize this but sometimes it can be like people, you know, coming into churches. You know, the music is too fast, the music is too slow, it's too traditional, it's too contemporary. The preaching's too long, the preaching's too short. Right? It can feel that way. And what he's saying is, um, you know, let me get this straight. You played the flute and I didn't dance for you. Or you played a funeral song and I'm supposed to cry for you? Your children is what he's telling them. You're acting like children. You ever get frustrated when your kids are whining and crying? And you know, kids do that. That's just what they do, right? They whine, they cry. We've got a room full of kids. No offense, guys. <clears throat> but you know, uh, they, they have this, you know, <laughs> and you, what do you want? You know, do you want food? They, uh, they move it out of your way. You want to be held? They, they push you away, you know? And you know, you almost, you have to tap dance for them and run around, and they, nothing can satisfy them. And you expect that because they're children. But Jesus is telling these people who see themselves as being the religious nobility of Israel, you're just like little kids. Fickle. You know, I mean, if Jesus said, you know, he wouldn't say this, but I mean, this is, these are my words. You know, you're like whiny little babies. But that's kind of what he's saying. 
But what Jesus is actually telling them is, this isn't a game. And he says, wisdom is justified by all of her children. God's plan of salvation, if it won't be vindicated by those that think they're the children of God by natural birth, the Pharisees and religious leaders, well, he has other children who will vindicate the wisdom of God. Wisdom is justified and vindicated by all of her children. Can we be misunderstanding Jesus? Do we misunderstand Jesus sometimes? We think the church, we can tend to think of the church in commercial terms. The bottom line, right? Church is money and numbers and buildings. But the Bible never talks about the church that way. The church is a body, the body of Christ with different members, all who need to function the right way for the body to be healthy and whole. Not just the head, not just the hand, not just the arm, but the church is the body of Christ when all of its members are functioning the way they're supposed to, there is health and there is wholeness. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, a spiritual temple, a dwelling place for the presence of God. The church is a bride who faithfully commits herself to her husband. That's what the church is. It's not money. It's not numbers. It's not a building. Are we fickle? Are we hard to please? God forbid. Let's pray. Father, now we ask and pray that the words we've heard this morning would trickle down from our heads into our hearts. Some have said that the distance between the two is the longest distance in the world, furthest distance in the world. We pray, God, that we would not be fickle, petulant, picky, but Lord God, we would orient ourselves to the purposes that you have intended for us in your son Jesus, and yes, even here in this church. God, we pray now that you would convict us and convince us of the word of God and let us leave differently than the way we came in. We pray these things in the name of your beloved son.